From Citizen Studios, this is The Mezzanine. I'm Cass Harrington. On this show, we go deep with musicians and artists of all kinds, talking about how the past shows up in their present lives and in what they make. Today, we're gonna shift gears a little bit. We're gonna talk to Tim Gormley. He's one of the founders of Burial Beer Company in Asheville. The beer scene is rife with personalities, but Tim, I have to say, is in a category all his own. He's constantly coming up with new ideas, and often the weirder, the better. We're gonna talk about his latest venture into wine, but first, we're gonna tap into his early life. Because from past to present, music has been an inextricable part of Tim's identity and his approach to beer making. He grew up in Glen Mills, in the outskirts of Philadelphia. As a teen, he'd ride into the city to catch metal shows on the weekends. That's where we uncork his story. Well, Tim Gormley, thank you so much for coming on the mezzanine. Of course. Um, Thanks for having me. Folks here know you as the head brewer and co-founder of Burial Beer Company. We are going to talk about brewing, but I think where I want to start is what I've found to be a common thread in your life, and that is your passion for music particularly metal. and (laughs) So tell us, I guess, where that interest came from. How did it get started? Well, um, I think that, so I have one younger, one sibling, a younger sister, Dana, who lives in town here. You know, when we were young, we like probably a lot of uh, siblings, we kind of hated each other for a, p- a period of time. But for whatever reason, I'm not sure why exactly. And uh, kind of like my high school years, we just like became big advocates of each other and like really protective and, and became very close. And so her and I kind of started bonding over music. And even though she's three years younger than me, she actually start kind of like had this friend group that was really into music. And I think she actually introduced me to a lot of the music that I kind of first became most passionate about. And, you know, that started off as being kind of like indie rock. Uh, I remember Smashing Pumpkins was like probably my first ever truly like love (laughs) band. I loved Modest Mouse back then as well. And um, and then I kind of slowly got into metal. I should also say um, I had a friend in high school, Jake was his name, and he introduced me to Metallica and Pantera. And I remember listening to like these CDs in his bedroom and just being like, pretty mind blown, like never really hearing anything like that before. (laughs) So, you know, I, I graduated high school in 99, just to give you a sense of the timing we're talking about. So, uh, I was kind of in, you know, my high school years, like new metal was like a big thing. (laughs) And like nineties grunge, like that was prime Nirvana years. hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, like I, when I first, you know, got my driver's license and had a car, I was driving into Philly like every chance I got to see live music. And there was a place called the First Unitarian Church in Philadelphia that I 
spent an enormous amount of time going to. They used to have uh, shows in the basement of the church. Like rock shows? Yeah, like all, all sorts of genres. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it was, it was such a cool scene. I mean, it was like super DIY and like this tiny stage, and um, it was kind of like a almost like a gym floor, and uh, it would get to be like, got awful hot in the summers. Uh, it was just such a incredible scene that I, I loved to be a part of. And, um, I mean, yes, metal has always been a big part of my life and, uh, it, assume that you're kind of, uh, alluding to the fact that the burial kind of aesthetic has a bit of a metal, um, tinge to it. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't notice that at all. No, right. I'm not going there. And yeah. Like that's, that's hundred percent true. And that definitely comes from my love of not only like the music of metal, but like the aesthetic of metal. Well, I love that. That's, that's a memory that you share with your younger sister, like kind of touches me. That's, that's how I got into music. I have an older brother and same thing, like got me into modest mouse or tool. Right, <laughs> sure. So I know that even though that the metal or the heavier rock scene can present as off-putting <laughs> to some, there's actually some underlying like sensibilities and tenderness that I don't think is immediately uh, perceptive. And I wanted to kind of go there a little oh, bit. Oh, sure, like, yeah darkness and death it is a, it is an inextricable part of life and those are themes that come up in metal music right. and it can offer some perspective oh yeah 100% that's something i think about a lot actually because i think that within the greater realm of independent music um there there's a lot of kind of like subcultural factions that develop the concept of subculture is something that has always resonated very deeply with me. And I feel like it drives me, it really has always driven me to like the types of things that I want to create. I like things that maybe aren't for everybody, but the people that, that it resonates with really love it and dive deep. And it, that, that creates like a, a community. So like a good example I use a lot is that my mom and my stepdad are both like motorcycle riders. <laughs> um, and they, they have a, you know, a crew of friends that all have motorcycles and they like tour around the country and the motorcycle culture has a somewhat similar vibe as like metal in a way where like you got these people that maybe on their surface look super like hard and um the least sensitive people that you would think of <laughs> the way that they um dress and you know maybe cut their hair or have tattoos or whatever that looks you know like different from most but if you know you talk to my mom and stepdad they're like these people are just the sweetest people you'll ever meet, you know? And I think that in metal specifically, you have to be careful <laughs> because there's undeniably factions of metal that are like legitimately violent and hateful. But yeah, I think that a lot of the people that I know personally that are in metal bands or that are just huge metal lovers are just super sweet 
beautiful people, just like anybody else. They just, you know, look a little different and they, yeah, like, you know, metal is abrasive music undeniably, but I think that that comes out of a place of like, it's just a way for, to get certain energies or stresses or whatever, like out of your system and to go to a metal show that isn't like, um, a band that's like legitimately trying to start violence, uh, even though like there might be a pit, uh, you know, people dancing and going crazy. There's always an inherent like love of each other. That concept has always kind of made me emotional when I like witness it. Sure. Because you see people like dancing and doing like roundhouse kicks and like running into each other at full force. But if somebody falls over, everybody's like very quick to pick them up and make sure they're okay. Because it's not about like hurting each other. It's about just like letting the music take over your soul for a few minutes and like uh, getting out some aggression that I think we all have like deep in us. (laughs) A lot of people don't know how to get it out. I think that it can be a very uh, cathartic and beneficial way to to get it out. You explained that really well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it ex- it speaks to repression, people feeling like certain emotions aren't accessible or not permitted, you know, nonconformity, and then suddenly being in a space where there are other people feeling and experiencing that as well. Um, so I guess that pull was strong enough for you to want to study audio engineering? <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> when I graduated or leading up to graduating high school, I had really no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And it just kind of felt like you're supposed to go to college. My dad had kind of urged me to go into something that would utilize my like math and science. That, that was kind of my specialty, I guess, or what I did best in, in high school. But I really didn't know where to go with it. And so I had this love of music and it just kind of dawned on me that if I went to, to school for like electrical engineering, um, then I could theoretically be like a audio engineer or, you know, but yeah, that didn't really work out that well for me, to be honest with you. We are thankful for that because yeah. <laughs> now we have great beer. <laughs> right, right, right. So how did you take that turn? You went into supply chain management. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then did you just start dabbling home brewing? How did that show up? I would say that Philadelphia arguably has one of the best beer scenes in the country. And... Um, I really fell in love with beer in in college, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, I grew up drinking, you know, like Yingling and Rolling Rock, which was, you know, both, they were both like Pennsylvania breweries at the time. Um, And of course, in college, like every college kid, you know, it's like keggers of the cheapest beer possible. It was an exquisite party if there was PBR. <laughs> right, I, right, I totally. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of Meisterbrow for some reason in my college years, which was just absolutely wretched. But um, I had had some like older friends uh, or older than me friends in college that were into beer and they, that just kind of like, I didn't even really 
think that beer was like a thing that you could get nerdy about, (laughs) but it kind of like fit into my personality, I think, in a way where like this burgeoning like craft beer scene was a bit under the radar, but it was a really like artistic way and a craft way to, to make and consume beer. And so my mom actually bought me a homebrew, a little like Mr. Beer homebrew kit as a uh, college graduation present. So thankfully she was paying attention. (laughs) Go mom. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to The Mezzanine. I'm speaking with Tim Gormley of Burial Beer. We're going to take a quick stretch break. Don't go anywhere. Hey there, I'm Colby Caldwell, General Manager at Citizen Vinyl. Something I'm passionate about here is the selection of records we play in the cafe called Daily Sides. These selections are based on something significant in music history, like an artist's birthday or the debut appearance on the Billboard chart. But we also like to keep it current. We're paying attention to what's in the news or what feels right in the moment. I hope you'll come by and have a listen. You can always check out the Daily Sides right next to the cafe menu. Meantime, enjoy the show. You're listening to The Mezzanine. I'm Cass Harrington, and I'm talking with Burial's co-founder, Tim Gormley. He met his fellow co-founders, Jess and Doug Reiser, when he was living and working in Seattle. In 2013, they all moved to Asheville and started making beer. We're going to talk about how things have changed in the last decade and about a new wine program that's closely tied to Tim's love for music. So... You and Doug and Jess moved to Asheville about 10 years ago, opened Burial, started Burial in six months after you moved. But hearkening back to your metal passion, (laughs) how did you convince them to have a metal (laughs) aesthetic and the name Burial? What was that discussion like? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one because if you knew Doug and Jess well, um, you would probably be like, wow, I can't believe your brewery like has this aesthetic. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. They're both very passionate about music and it's not like they are appalled by (laughs) heavy music. They're into, into it to some degree. The, the name component. Actually, Jess was the one that came up with the name. And I think there's a pretty cool story about that. So Doug and Jess lived in New Orleans for a little while. And New Orleans, of course, is just like a really special place with like a very unique kind of culture to it. And um, it was, I think that we were in this stage of writing our business plan for the brewery and Jess took a trip back to New Orleans and we were trying to come up with a name and we wanted something that was like simple, but, you know, stood out, recognizable. And so I think that Jess was just, you know, her mind was open to names and she's in New Orleans and she went by a cemetery. And of course, in New Orleans, the cemeteries are pretty unique because New Orleans is below sea level. So none of the, they don't have underground tombs. They're all above ground. So it's a pretty striking um, thing to see. And and it's very vis- visual and funerals get parades. Yes, exactly. The The jazz funeral was like a huge 
has always been a huge part of our kind of like branding. But yeah, so she pitched the name Burial and I, of course, loved it. Uh, and Doug, Doug was into it as well. And it was just like simple, interpretable, lended itself well to a certain aesthetic. And it wasn't taken, which was actually more challenging than you might expect. Um, well, so... Doug and Jess are like me are also really into like visual art. Jess actually um, has a degree in arts administration, and she she was always really passionate about like Flemish art. Um, you know, she kind of introduced me to to that. And a lot of this art, um, like Hieronymus Bosch, is a really good example. If you look at these paintings, even though I think in a lot of ways they're like inspired by some kind of religious connotations, they're they're very like dark and morbid and psychedelic. So I think that when we were discussing the look and the feel, that was definitely a contributing factor. Like I was kind of like pitching all these poster and album cover illustrators that I've had followed and really loved and was like, Hey, what do you think about this person? What do you think about this person? And I think the ones that most resonated with Doug and Jess were the ones that kind of, yes, it had this like darkness perhaps, but it also had like this kind of beauty to it, like a, like a nature mm-hmm. kind of reverence. The duality of life and death. The exactly. Decomposition of something leads to the growth of something else. hundred percent. Yep. That's, that is very much a theme of, of what we do. And so, yeah, I pitched a few different illustrators and then we kind of ended up uh, stumbling upon David Paul Seymour, who is still to this day, our illustrator. And of course, uh, after nine years, we've become quite close with him and, yeah, it's been it's been a really incredible experience and like I can't even imagine separating the burial brand from like his art. It's just so symbiotic at this point. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So, 9 years ago, you were a self-described nano brewery with one barrel. And from one barrel to 10, you expanded to forestry camp the bottle shop in Charlotte. How big do you want this to get? Yeah, it's a great question and something that we talk about uh, very, very often at Burial. From the very beginning, our business plan was to to not allow ourselves to get too big. Um, I think that, that that kind of stemmed from us witnessing through our time as just craft beer lovers and, and like into craft beer owners, certain brands and, and breweries that we just totally um, were enamored with at one point, And then for whatever reason, just kind of grew to a place where they were or maybe more accessible is the best way to put it. Because I think with accessibility comes, you know, you start to lose that demand on some level for, for being, you know, what I was talking about earlier, being like a, a brewery of a place where, you know, you can't just super easily get their beer. You have to like put a little work in. Mm-hmm. And when you put work into something, you tend to appreciate it more. <laughs> and so we've always wanted to purposefully 
stay small. And um, the way that that's kind of manifesting itself right now is that we've little by little incrementally increased our overall production, but we've kind of like reached this point where like, okay, if we want to make more beer, we really have to like invest in a lot more infrastructure to allow that. And, you know, it is tough as a business, I'm sure that's true for any business, where you kind of get start to feel like if you're not growing, you're dying. Um, and so we want to kind of continue to progress and to grow. And how do we do that without making more beer? And so the thing we've kind of settled in on is like, how do we try to create more experiences instead of more beer? Well, and I imagine as Burial has grown, um, more of your input or decision-making becomes of the logistical sort and maybe a little more detached from, you know, having your, you know, walking the floor and, you know, being around the hops and um, experimenting as much. Do you have an outlet for that? Yeah, it's interesting because you you kind of um, introduced me at the beginning as like the head brewer. A lot of people kind of know me as the head brewer, and, and that was my title and role for the first five years of the business. But um, at this point, to be honest with you, I my contribution to the beer that we put out is extremely minimal, <laughs> if at all. You know, we have people in place that we trust and that are incredibly talented. And I'm not embarrassed to say are better at brewing beer than I am. (laughs) Um, And that was the intention, you know? And so it just didn't make sense for me to be doing that anymore. But as of right now, the title that I have is director of development, which, you know, is basically a made up term. (laughs) You know, the way that that manifests is essentially I infuse most of my creativity and experience and knowledge into trying to come up with ways for burial to present other flavors and experiences outside of like what burial is known for and used to doing. And the the main area by which I, I do that is within the realm of the visuals wine brand, which is some the visuals brand is something that we created a, a few years back and it's kind of um, shifted a lot through the years, but essentially we've settled in on it's our it's our wine brand. For the most part, any like fermented beverage that we we produce and sell that isn't beer falls into the visuals brand right now and but yeah that's that's basically my my baby so you know the visuals brand just like burial is is owned um, by Doug Jess and I but it's kind of very much my vision <laughs> um, and so the the look and the feel and the aesthetic and the in a lot of cases, the direction of the products is coming from my brain. And I, of course, have a lot of help from a lot of people at Burial. <laughs> uh, I couldn't do it completely alone. But yeah, that's that's kind of where my creativity goes. And it's an, it's kind of an interesting story if you want 
to get into it. I do because <laughs> I mean it it ties in nicely with this common thread the, through the conversation right. and you again work music into this concept. Sure, sure, Can you yeah. talk a little about that? Inevitably, I think about beverages very much like in a reverse engineering kind of sense. Uh, how did they make this happen? And so consuming music to me is, is very similar to that, where like if there's a musician or a band that I really love that puts out a new piece of music, I want to give like myself a moment or hopefully several moments um, to like consume that music in a fully open way <laughs> uh, to really absorb it and think about it um, and analyze it, I guess, as much as I'm capable um, to analyze well, you know, it. And I, I, I'll interject here. You, you frequently, if not ritually, post photos of your turntable. Right, yeah, and yeah. It seems like you have a certain reverence for that. Like it's almost like an altar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my that's I'm my observation. I'm glad that that comes through yeah. <laughs> because it's that's it's very true for me. Yeah, it is. It's very true. I mean, I tend to think that in this modern world we live in, where there's so much information always. And I don't know anybody in my demographic that doesn't feel like they have ADD on some level. <laughs> um, we just don't often enough give ourselves the time and the, the, the time and space to really like absorb a thing, you know, like we live in a time where we read the the headline and we don't read the whole story and that's how we like learn about things. Yeah. Or um, we get halfway through the headline and then our notifications <laughs> ping and we've lost our train of thought. Yeah, exactly. And as a maker myself, I like, I have a lot of stories to tell. And I, I, I think that art in general is always appreciated more if you have like the backstory, you know? Well, speaking of, um, so two adults with ADD, I'll do a little reset. <laughs> um, yeah. So how is visuals bringing music into the wine program? Right. Where's the connection there? Yeah. So I guess I will say that the type of music that I'm most passionate about in art is music that's, um, kind of atmospheric, psychedelic, I listen to a lot of music that doesn't have vocals, instrumental music, music that's kind of like cinematic, I guess you could say, but music that is just like, it engages my, my brain in a way that is, um, much more cerebral, I guess you could say. Um, whereas the message of the music is not very, um, it's not literal. Yeah, it's not, right? It's not easy to, okay, I'm going to like read the lyrics and get a really good sense of what this artist is trying to say. And so I basically came up with this idea to make the wine club have, you know, four releases a year, at least that's my goal, um, to have the releases be on like the solstice or the equinox, um, which not only just is an aesthetic that I love, but also is it makes a lot of sense when you think about wine as being very much tied to seasonality. Um, and, you know, the, there is a 
definitive singular harvest for yeah. grapes in connection to the moon cycles exactly yeah and you know all wine is made one time of the year and harvest is you know and like you were saying earlier with like the cyclical nature of of life where it's like you know harvest happens at this time and then the plant dies and it goes back into the earth and that that feeds the earth so that the next year another harvest can can happen and so um i wanted to to basically have the wine club be very much like this essentially like a rich i like to think of it as a ritual um or a ceremony uh around the consumption of the wine that comes with with the club membership there's there's a thing that that I think about a lot as it pertains to wine. And that's like the ter- terroir piece that, you know, gets talked about a lot with wine. And that's such a beautiful, like, concept is that wines being such a of the earth mm-hmm. agricultural product with one growing season and one harvest, wine has this very unique ability to represent you know, a certain moment in time, a certain place. Uh, people often, you know, drink a wine and be like, okay, I know that this was, um, this wine came from this part of France and that particular season was, you know, hotter than normal and the soil is um, very yeah. volcanic or whatever the case may be. I'm thinking about, I lived in Argentina and I remember visiting a winery in Mendoza and on the walls they had these glass urns that were mounted with just the layers of soil represented on the vineyard around the building and the owner talked about you know this is this is why we're here and this is why this wine is so good so what is Asheville's terroir (laughs) (laughs) well yeah I guess what I'm getting at here is that the wine that we make, the grape wine that we make is all coming from California. Mm-hmm. We literally like make, bottle everything, our wine at this point in California. We, the, the final product comes to us and we sell it here. So being an Asheville-based company, we, we kind of like lose out on that terroir piece uh, specifically to the to the grape wines. So I wanted to try to bring that back in some way. I wanted to bring it back to Asheville and just celebrate the beautiful place that we have that's filled with a lot of incredibly artistic people. And and so I wanted to represent the terroir of Asheville in in a in a way that was separated from the wine but more so with these other things, products um, that are a part of the club. So, so I've just been essentially reaching out to people that I admire that make really incredible things in town. Um, there's so many of them. And asking these people if they'd be you know, open to collaborating with me on this mm-hmm. and trying to come up with this like very curated experience so that... If people that are in the club, they get this tote bag full of all these things and they take it home and they, you know, have their own little like ritual with all the components like 
factoring in some way, shape, or form, in, and hopefully creating it. Yeah, I think it would be, I'd be remiss to not mention that, like, our experience with COVID recently uh, is a contributing factor to, like, where my head was at with this, where, like, for a while there, we lost our ability to, like, go out and have these experiences with food or drink or live music where we had to get creative and find ways to do that at home. And so this is, this is that like take home experience. I don't think that it's any less important or valid, but yeah, I think that it's just like, how do we very intentionally take these moments for ourselves in a world where it can be really hard to do that. Like I was kind of alluding to earlier, like if I'm, if I have a bottle of wine or beer in my cellar that I am like kind of saving for a special occasion because it feels like I'm really excited about it or it's rare or whatever the case may be. For me personally, I'm not going to just like willy nilly grab a, a corkscrew, pull the cork out, you know, pour it in a solo cup and like taste it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to be like, okay, this is a special one. I'm going to like find my favorite glass and I'm going to like decide what I want to listen to when I open this up. And I'm going to maybe like light a candle or, or like, I'm going to make sure I sit on my porch, uh, at sunset or whatever, whatever moment will put me in the headspace where I can enjoy it and think about it and not be distracted. You're a really thoughtful person, Tim. <laughs> thank, thank you for sharing with us. Yeah. And something I notice in talking with you and just learning about your life trajectory is there seem to be really critical like turns in your life where you're Internal friction is logic versus passion, soul, meaning. Um, why has it been so important to you to do the things that give you joy or the things that you think will move you or move someone else in a way that they haven't, you know, considered or experienced before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, you're, you're right that um, I have this... Uh, I filter a lot of things through logic, uh, always, but I definitely, you know, am passionate about the things that I think are special. And, um, I think it relates back to so much of just like the things that I appreciate the most in life are, um, these like expressions that are, unique and that are again kind of like what I was saying earlier like not necessarily for everybody they come from a place that's a little bit less filtered I tend to think that the best art in the world the the things that end up kind of changing the dynamic um, are the things that are are not acceptable initially and then slowly find an audience in a way are you gonna get like super psychotherapy on you but <laughs> almost tending to you you know growing up on the outskirts of philly like were there things that 
visually were lacking in that landscape. And if you had had those nudges, it would have made for, I don't know, an easier time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, to be honest with you, when I was younger, I would, I did not consider myself a creative person at all. Like I would, it just wasn't, I never had anybody like urging me to do that. Whenever, you know, there's, I feel like when you're growing up and you're like in art school or not art school, but like art class and as a kid, you know, you do certain, certain like, um, types of art that are super common, right? But there's not always room for like, oh, well, this is also an art that you might not even know existed. Or, And so, you know, when I found beer, like that, that was, that was kind of, that became my medium of like creating a thing. And through experimenting with beer and discovering all these different ingredients and processes, there came a, a time, uh, fairly late in my life, I guess, where I was like, maybe I am kind of creative, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, perhaps you're right. Perhaps if I had discovered this part of myself earlier, it had been cultivated in some way, then I would be in a very different place right now. But yeah, who knows? Maybe by now I would be in a place that's so obscured <laughs> that you wouldn't uh, care to, to hear my story. Tim, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it so much. Um, do you need a beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The Mezzanine is a production of Citizen Studios, located at Citizen Vinyl in Asheville, North Carolina. The theme music was composed and produced by Gar Ragland. This episode was engineered by Gar as well. Eric Piper is our graphic designer. Kirsten Clower manages the website. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Tim Gormley. And I'm your host, Cass Harrington. See you next time.